This week is a time that our culture um, celebrate things, and we, we talk about the things that we are thankful for. Um, and, and when I ask you a question like, what are you most thankful for? What comes to your mind? Just take a second and just, you don't have to yell it out. Just, just think in your mind, like, what are, what are you most thankful for? And then I want to guess and see if I got it right. All right, everybody got something in their head? Just kind of nod for me. Yeah, I got something I'm thankful for. So you were all thinking repentance, right? That, that was what you were all thinking. See, in, in God's sovereignty, this week's psalm by David is a thanksgiving psalm. It, it's a psalm of thanksgiving for us, and it's, it's so amazing how God lines this up, you know, a year ago so that it just it falls here today as we get ready to celebrate, celebrate Thanksgiving as a church this afternoon, um, but also as a country this coming week. Um, and, and David is describing a most unusual kind of thankfulness. He's, he's describing the blessedness that comes when God makes right a life that has gone wrong. He's celebrating when God makes a right a life that has gone wrong. Psalm 32 is full of thanksgiving and testimony by David of God's goodness to him. And David wrote this psalm with the hope that we will learn from his experience this morning. That's, that's David's hope, is, is that we will not have to learn the hard way, as we're gonna, he's going to show us the hard way in this psalm, but instead that we would learn from his example and, and what he has gone through and what he has lived through and what God has brought him through. David wants us to know that despite being given so much wisdom, he chose to live foolishly. Ignoring God's law, and he found himself in trouble but he also wants us to see how God saved and restored him this morning. Psalm 32 and 51, just to give you a little background of these two psalms, they're telling us the inside story of events that happened in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. So if, you want, if you're taking notes, you might want to take down that note. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, go back and read what's happening. And, and, and Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 give us kind of an insight into David's heart and mind during that experience in his life. David, in that section, had committed adultery. He had lied. He had played a part in murder. And at some point, he was just plagued with guilt and misery. And somewhere between 9 to 12 months passed, and God sent Nathan to confront David about his sin. And finally, he came clean and he dealt with his guilt. Psalm 51, will you hear the confession that David actually made. He appealed to the Lord, have mercy on me. Wash me, David says. He understood the nature of his sin when he said, against you and you alone have I sinned. And then he desired a change in his whole person when he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. 
And in the middle of David's confession, David asks in Psalm 51 for the privilege of being a case study for others. In other words, David is is saying, don't just let this sin of mine go to waste. I want other people to learn from it. How, How amazing is that? How many of you would like your biggest failure to be a case study for everyone else in church? Right? But that, that's what David is saying in Psalm 51, is, is let other people learn from my mistakes. And he made a promise in, in Psalm 51, 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you, he says. So David, making good on that promise of Psalm 51, writes Psalm 32 for us this morning. He's reflecting on his own experience And he seeks to instruct us in the joy of repentance this morning. The true blessedness of dealing with our sin by honest confession and receiving God's forgiveness in our lives. So this is the context that that David wrote Psalm 32, the, the background and what's going on. But before we read our psalm together, I want to point out kind of the flow of this psalm. And I know normally, you know, you're used to pastors having three, maybe four points, but this is a seven-pointer, okay? Like, come on now. That didn't sound very thankful out there. We're going to break it down into seven small sections. We're talking a verse, okay, guys? David's blessing is the first one, verses one and two. The second is David's misery that we're going to see in verses 3 and 4. Then we're going to see David's confession in verse 5. David's counsel to us in verse 6. David's deliverance in verse 7. David's warning in verses 8 and 9. And then David's rejoicing in verses 10 through 11. So David's blessing, David's mercy, his confession, counsel, deliverance, warning, and rejoicing. So with that said, let's put our psalm up on the screen. If you have your Bible, read along with us as we read Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. So David starts out this psalm with the first two verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David starts out with a blessing. He, he wants us to see the blessing. And we're going to see in a minute, he's going to end with a blessing as well. He's going to end with rejoicing. And, and here we see the bountiful blessing of being forgiven by God. We're, we're, we're seeing in these two verses the complete covering of sin with God's forgiveness. Notice that David uses three different words to help us understand the comprehensiveness of our sin. And this is, this is a pattern you're going to see if you like patterns. I love patterns. And throughout this psalm, you're going to see a pattern of threes. And this is very intentional by David because he wants us to see the fullness of something. And, and by doing that, he's, he's doing things in sets of threes. Here we see transgression, sin, and iniquity. He's using three different words to help us understand what's going on with the sin in our lives. He doesn't want us to miss one aspect of our sin. You can think of transgression as crossing a line, right? There's a line here, and we've crossed it. That is a, a transgression. You can think of sin in this context as the, the violation of a divine command. In other words, missing God's mark, right? So, so God has drawn a line in the sand, and now you've stepped across that line in the sand. You can think of iniquity here as a perverse turning upside down or turning aside from the proper course of life. In other words, at this point, iniquity and transgression, or excuse me, sin and transgression is so entrenched into your life. It, it is the desire that you have to not do anything right anymore. You are so focused on your sin. You are so entrenched in your sin. You are now living a life of iniquity. And David is, is wanting us to see the comprehensive nature of the sin that he sees in his life, but it's also the sin we experience in our life. But notice how David juxtaposes his sin with the awesomeness of God's forgiveness. Again, with a threefold, a threefold pattern. Transgression is forgiven. Sin is covered. And God chooses to count no iniquity. David wants us to see not only the, the comprehensive, the complete nature of our sin, but also the enormity of God's forgiveness of our sin. David uses the word forgive, which means to lift or to carry away. See, sin, sin is a burden that is so heavy that only God can carry it. And he carries it away for you. But that, that's what happens at salvation. That's what happens when we cry out to him in confession and repentance. David also uses the word cover, which is alluding to the atoning sacrifices that covered the Israelites' sin. God covers the repentance sin. He, he hides it. He obliterates it. And then David says, God doesn't count or impute or, or, or think upon them anymore. 
Unlike some of your wives that keep detailed lists of all your failures, God doesn't do that. Woo! Amen? That's exciting. David says God doesn't count our iniquity. This is why you and I have a great reason to be thankful this morning. Our sins have been forgiven. They are no longer charged to our account. There is no longer someone keeping a detailed list of records and going, okay, that, well, you, remember that time you did this? Remember in the second grade? Remember in the ninth grade? Remember the, for your freshman year of college? Remember all those stupid things you did? Nobody, nobody's keeping those records. They're gone. They're obliterated. We're forgiven. That should make us thankful this morning. So why is it that so many of us don't live thankfully every day? Knowing this reality, knowing this truth. Why is it that so many of us depend on things like obedient children or, or financial stability or our favorite teams winning to be thankful? We, we depend on all these other things instead of God's forgiveness. Why do we so often experience what David is experiencing in verse 3? And four instead. See, the second section here is David's misery. Verses three through four, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David tells us that one of the reasons that we don't experience the joy of forgiveness is because of the way we handle our sin. If we are silent about our sin, we will groan. We feel as if our bones are wasting away. Our strength literally dries up. And this is not to say... This is important for you to hear this morning. This is not to say that everyone that suffers is suffering as a result of personal sin, okay? We, we don't need to assume that sin is the cause of all the brokenness and hurt. Because listen, we live in a sinful world. And other people create suffering for you. Their sin might create suffering for you. It's not just your personal sin. But as Christians, we must always at least consider if and how our sin may be involved in our suffering. Knowing God's word, we should consider that as a possibility. But like David did at first, we are often silent about our sin and we fail to recognize that our suffering is a result of our own sin. What a contrast this misery is to the blessedness that, that David just described in verse 2. David wants us to see the night and day difference between the misery of silence and the blessedness of full and honest confession. We all know how rare it is for someone to admit their sin right away, right? I mean, I think about it like as a parent, and I see other parents, and, and we watch our kids, and we've all been in those situations where, where the kid does something right in front of us, 
Like we watch them do it, and then they turn around and go, I didn't do that. What are you talking about? And, and what I don't get really, and, and, and I don't get it about myself either, is why am I still shocked when I encounter blatant deceit and denials? It, it's so abnormal to see someone just own their sin right away. And yet, I'm still shocked by the fact that people don't do it. We're all hardwired for that tendency to avoid and hide our sin. But David says, bless, it says the blessed person is the one in whom there is no deceit. The one who comes clean with sin. David shows how he violated that general principle. And then how he learned that lesson the hard way. Remember the context, the background I gave you of this psalm. David did many things wrong. And, and he, in a pattern of events, tried to cover them up and hide them more and more and more by his actions. And David said, the end result of that is I just I felt like I was wasting away. He, he doesn't mince words here. His silence cost him greatly, resulting in tremendous personal trouble. I love how the Hebrew language here just paints this picture with words. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Right? We, we've all seen those cartoons, those pictures of that guy who's, who's trying to cross the desert and he's just like, you know, he's just, his body is just dried up from a lack of water. That's the picture that David is painting for us here in this verse. In, in essence, he's saying, when I kept silent about my sin, my strength was dried up. I felt pressed down like a useless version of who I once was. Are you getting the picture of the misery that David is painting for us here? And it's through misery, affecting not only his soul, but his mind, his emotions, and his body. Keeping silent about his sin infected his entire being. Every part of him experienced it. But God didn't leave him there. David says his, God's heavy hand on David kept the seriousness and the consequences of his sin ever before him. Now, I, I've talked about this in some previous songs, but what a gracious gift this is of God to leave his hand heavy upon David. It, it's a gift when God lays his heavy hand upon us in order to convince us to turn from our sin. Otherwise, we would just continue to sin. We would just continue in our sinfulness, moving farther and farther and farther away from our Heavenly Father in rebellion. And so instead, God places His heavy hand upon Him. We see this concept elsewhere in Scripture, places like where He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. God doesn't want a believer to remain in sin. He doesn't want us to keep silent and to remain silent living in our sin. Why? Because sin destroys us. 
It makes us miserable human beings that we, no one wants to be around. Not even God, because our sinfulness is just so repugnant. And God is like, listen, don't be silent about that. Don't become that person. Confess that sin. So God lays his heavy hand upon us to awaken our minds so that we will turn from that sin. David learned this, and we do well to learn from him and from his mistakes. Our lives will be so much better if we live what David is saying here and not be silent about our sin. David eventually submitted to God's heavy hand. And we're going to see David's confession here in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David is saying the remedy to misery from our sin is confession. The remedy to the misery that we experience by being and keeping silent about our sin is confession. Not blame shifting, not hiding, not covering, not pretending like it doesn't exist, but confession. David again uses three synonymous words. There's a threefold pattern again to convey the comprehensive nature of confession. He acknowledges sin, he does not cover it, and he confesses it. Everything is out in the open. David lays himself bare before his God. And his language conveys an urgency and an eager willingness. First, he acknowledges, I came before you, my my Father in heaven, to declare purposefully and declare willingly and declare emphatically my sin before you. Because I know that in you, I will receive forgiveness. In you, I'll receive mercy. I'll receive grace. In you, I am forgiven. I am cleansed of all this unrighteousness. And I'm coming to you willingly with my sin. Because I know that that means health for my soul. Then he says, I did not hide it. I'm not trying to cover it up. This this is clothing language that's being used here. I, I laid my sin bare. I laid it naked, totally exposed, totally open. There's a word play going on here in the Hebrew where it's like if you cover up your sin, God won't. If you don't cover up your sin, God will. If you cover up your sin, God won't. If you don't cover up your sin, God will. You see what's happening there? David is saying, is, is I will confess, which simply means to admit, to agree with, to be in, of one mind with someone. You see, confession requires submission and trust. It, it, it requires me saying, you are God and I am not. 
You are the standard, O Lord. It's not my standard. That requires submission. But it also requires us to trust Him, right? We're trusting that God, whatever you say, goes. And I will agree. If you say it is sin, then I will say it is sin. Sometimes we're tempted to think, well, you know, maybe I'd like God to reconsider whether some of these things are, are sin or not, right? Maybe, maybe, God, maybe we could get together and like draw up a new plan, right? No. We, as believers who have the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit and God's assurance of forgiveness should be able to submit to him and trust him and confess our sins to God. It's out of a fear of judgment that we avoid God. But in Christ, we have no fear of judgment anymore. If you are in Christ this morning, there is no reason to be afraid of God. There is no reason to be in fear of his judgment any longer because Christ has taken that judgment upon himself. We are free to run to him and to confess and be forgiven. Joy comes in knowing that our heavenly father graciously forgives us and restores right relationship with us. God delights in showing mercy to his people. Have you ever, have you ever humbly approached someone with a confession and, and asked for forgiveness only to have that person kind of half-heartedly with reluctance maybe accept it? Right? Like you're like, okay, please, w- would you forgive me for what I've done? And everything about the person's body language and, and tone just is conveying like resistance, like, you know, like, you're saying it, so I guess I have, to, I have to forgive you, right? But here, and, and listen, let this sink into your mind about God. Our Heavenly Father never responds that way. Never. He describes himself in his word as one who leans forward to you, because he's interested in what you say. I, I always think about the, the, the picture of the prodigal son and the father. And, and, and the father's not waiting up there to say, I told you so. He's running out to meet the son. That, that's the picture we have of our God. When a sinner is, is coming back in repentance, our God's running out to meet him halfway. He wants to meet you this morning. He wants to to forgive you this morning if you will only confess to him your sin. Stop being silent about it. When you plead for mercy, it is a great joy for him to give it to you. He rejoices in being merciful. He rejoices in forgiving you. Don't ever hesitate to come before God with your sin. Instead, acknowledge it, confess it. Don't delay and don't cover anything up. 
See, this morning, many, many people don't move from misery to blessing because they do not practice complete confession. And so they just, they just live in this state of constant misery. David experienced the blessing of confession in his life. And like a loving person who discovers some important truth that, that helps improve his life, what does he want to do? He wants to tell everybody about it. It doesn't matter how bad it makes him look. He doesn't care because he's found something real and he wants to share it with the world. And in verse 6, David gives us his kind counsel. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. David directs his speech to the Lord, but for all of us to hear, David counsels us all as we witness this prayer and hear the urgency in his tone. He's saying, do this quickly. Do not waste time. Right? Do this in a time in which you may be found. We still live in that time, folks. We're still there. There's still an opportunity for you this morning. It's not too late. And David's saying, listen, before it is too late, before you draw your last breath, or before the Lord returns one way or the other, it'll be too late. So while you may be found, we should seek him. When you get it wrong like David, the good news is you can get it right. There's a right way to handle it when we do wrong. David tells us the way. We can run to God when we get it wrong. And we can get right with God. Again, we don't naturally run freely to confess our sins when we do something wrong. Instead, we regularly behave like most of our children. And, and what, do we, what do they do? They run and hide, right? As soon as they hear their voice, they hear that name called, <laughs> they are suddenly nowhere to be found, right? And, and listen, we get that natural. Our kids get that natural. Adam and Eve, they taught a master class on it in Genesis 3, right? First, they tried to get some leaves to hide themselves, but if you remember, that wasn't enough. So what did they do? They hid themselves in the trees. They tried to use the trees to hide themselves. And then when Adam is finally caught out, what does he do? He hides behind Eve. It's her fault. That sounds like parenting 101 to me. We get it naturally. But David urges something different for us. He urges us to run to God, to learn from David's counsel. David goes on to describe that with God, our safety is sure. That we can be guaranteed of deliverance. We have no reason to fear confessing. God's judgment was laid on Christ at the cross. And he loves us. And as 1 John 4.18 reminds us, there is no fear in love. Verse 7 shows us that deliverance. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The assurance of safety is expanded on in verse 6 
when it talks about at the end there, in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. That, that water could refer to anything. It could be enemies, tough times, disease, sickness, challenging circumstances, or just the consequences of sinful choices. And the water could, could there, the, <coughs> excuse me, the waters that surround you, David says, but don't forget that God's deliverance also surrounds you. And in him there is sure safety. David further builds our confidence in God with a picture of a fortified city with guards keeping watch, protecting the people from attacks. Finally, the, the shouts of deliverance convey the idea that there is an incredible victory over whatever it is that's threatening our well-being. David is saying no matter the severity of our sin, we can be assured that deliverance is close. Many of you, many people don't come to Christ for salvation because they believe that their sin is too great. I've heard that so many times. Why? You just don't know the things I've done, Dale. You just don't know. It's just, it's, it's just some of the stuff I've done is just too heinous. There's no way God could forgive me. But there is no sin this morning that is so severe that it will not be forgiven when we confess it to the Lord. God will not turn away anyone who comes after him with a repentant heart. He is our deliverance. He is our sure safety. And then in verses 8 and 9, his, his voice kind of changes here. And, and David changes from writing from his point of view to that of God's point of view. And God gives us a warning. In verse 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Here again, David uses this threefold system to give us the comprehensiveness of the nature of God's guidance. I will instruct you, I will teach you, and I will counsel you. God gives us instruction because he doesn't want us to follow the path of the fool. He doesn't want us to be foolish, right? Proverbs 26, 11 says, a dog that returns to his, his own vomit repeats his folly, right? And he, God's like, I don't, I don't want you to be like that. So I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to teach you. But listen, God does also, he doesn't want you to be like a horse or a mule without understanding. For them, obedience will require a bit and a bridle. Do you know what he's saying there? What God's saying there is for these kinds of people, these mule-headed people, it takes misery to lead them. That's what that bit and bridle represents. They have to learn something the hard way. They can't learn from other people's example. They can't learn from David's example. They can't learn from God's instruction. They have to go out and do it themselves. They have to do it the hard way. And God is pleading, don't, don't be like that. Don't be like a person that has to be led around by a bit and a bridle. Many people mistakenly think that misery is what it takes to learn something. Listen, that, it is an ineffective teacher, don't get me wrong, but it's not the only teacher. 
You can learn from other people's misery. You can learn from David's. You can, you can hear God's plea in these verses. Please, please don't be the kind of person that has to learn the hard way. Trust in my words and in my instruction. Know that I am sovereign, that I am wise, that I am perfect. And know that I am out for your good. When we refuse to listen to God's counsel, what we're communicating is a lack of trust that God knows what he's talking about. Remember I said part of complete confession requires trust. And when we don't trust God, we, we just go and do what we want to do. We, we communicate a lack of belief in God. That, that, that he's not omniscient, that he doesn't know. We act in pride and arrogance when we simply decide, I don't need his instructions. I'm going to, to, give, to, to live life my own way. That's just pride and arrogance. We have a choice this morning. You have a choice this morning. You can either learn by command or you can learn by misery. That is a choice that each of you can make this morning. God has given us the knowledge of His commands and His Word. So it's pointless for us to be mule-headed and make choices that go against His wisdom. As we learn to not be silent about our sin, to come clean with it, to receive forgiveness and grace in Christ, to avoid rebellion against God, then we have a good reason to live with relentless rejoicing. I want you to notice David's rejoicing here in verse 10 and 11. Many of the sorrows of the wicked, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Why do the wicked have so many sorrows? Why, why are the wicked... Miserable. Because they don't know forgiveness. They don't know Christ. But, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. We are glad in the Lord and rejoice because we are forgiven. God has made us righteous. He's made us upright. And because of that, we shout with joy. Again, David uses three words. This the pattern of this psalm is just so beautiful. Com communicating the comprehensiveness of our rejoicing. When he says, be glad, right? That, that's like an inward, hearty joy. It, it doesn't necessarily express itself on the outside. You can't necessarily see that. But then to rejoice is to express that joy that we feel inside in some way. And then finally, to shout for joy is to cry out with gladness. It's like being triumphant after a victory, right? You read about the, the, the Israelites in the Old Testament, and they would shout whenever the, the, the battle would be over, and they would have won. They shouted out to the Lord. David's painting a picture here for us, and, and it's a little hard for us to see because we don't go into battle that often, but I, I, I think this might help us. Imagine for a minute, that your favorite college football team is about to win the final game 
of an undefeated season. Now, I know for all of us that root for Florida, Florida State, or Miami, all we can do is imagine. (laughs) But stay with me here, okay? Just imagine we're undefeated. We're right here at the end. It's the fourth quarter. There's 11 seconds left on the clock. The other team just scored, and now we're down by three points. Your team takes the field, sets up to receive the kickoff. All they need to do is return the kickoff for a touchdown, and you'll win. That's all you got time for. There's no time for catching it, running any plays. You got to you got to run it all the way back. And you're watching as the play unfolds. The running back is back at his end zone. He catches the ball at the 10-yard line and he begins to run. Misses the first few blockers or, or defenders and gets out to the 25. At that point, you, you kind of start holding your breath if you're like me. You're like, oh. You don't want to get too excited because there's still a lot of ground he's got to cover. But there's a sense of inward joy starting to well up, right? Nobody maybe can see it yet, but it's, but it's, it's starting to well up inside of you. Then he crosses the 50-yard line, and you stand up. You quietly raise your hands, right? He's got one guy to beat now. He's just got to beat the kicker. And then all of a sudden, he passes him at the 35-yard line. And you cry out, he could go all the way! Right? And you shout for joy when he scores. That's what David is painting a picture of us, for us here in these words. There, There is a climax of our joy that results in a shout of joy. It starts inwardly. It builds, expressing itself outwardly. But ultimately, it can't be contained. Then the joy increases. When we we think about the inward gladness that we have, when we know that our sins are forgiven. And then it kicks up a little bit more when we realize God's kindness to me is real. And eventually there's a shout of hallelujah, he saved me. Notice how this psalm is bookend with God's blessing and relentless rejoicing. David structured the psalm this way in order to press this central point into our hearts Do not keep silent about your sin. There is a joy, there is a thankfulness that comes with genuine confession and repentance. This morning, what makes you thankful? What brings you joy? In our culture, it would be shocking to see the words rejoice, joy, happiness in the same context as repentance. But as believers, there's a kind of happiness in our hearts that the world just can't imagine. It's so unusual 
to normal expectations for what makes human happiness. But we who are found in Christ, we understand there is a great joy in repentance. I want to close this morning by encouraging you to pray to God. That same God that invites you to come to Him to be cleansed from all unrighteousness, ask Him to help you to not hesitate to run to Him with joy. Or excuse me, with your sin. So that you might experience this joy. Resolve to confess your sins wholeheartedly. Without justification, without excuses. God, I know I did wrong, but she did too. She's not there praying with you. Focus on you. No excuses. No covering. No explaining away. Own the sin. Agree with God that it was a sin. Resolve to confess your sins wholeheartedly. And ask Him for grace to live as a person who truly understands the magnificence of the forgiveness that is, in, that is yours in Christ. This morning, I, I pray that you will entrust your soul to Him. Because He absolutely delights in showing you mercy. Let's pray. Father, we have so much to be thankful for. You, even just in the material world, God, we, we live in a time of such prosperity and peace but God ultimately we we come to you thankful this morning for repentance for the ability that we have to come and to confess our sins to you and know that you delight that you rejoice in showing mercy to your children Father, this morning, I, I pray for those that are here in this room that, that don't know you, that, that have never confessed, have never entrusted your lives, their lives to you. God, I pray for them the most this morning, that this would be the morning that they would give their lives to you. They would confess their sin and turn to your son for forgiveness. And Lord, they would, they would receive that forgiveness this morning. And Father, for those of us who have been walking with you for maybe weeks, months, or years, Lord, but over time we started hiding our sin again. We, we started covering it up and blaming it on other people and excusing it away. And Lord, if we're honest this morning, we don't feel a lot of joy. We feel a lot of misery. Father, I pray this morning we would uncover that sin. We would lay it bare before your feet. And we would experience that, that refreshing joy, God, that we experienced when you saved us. And that like David, we would move from misery to rejoicing. As we experience the forgiveness 
of our sin, that our, that our iniquity is no longer counted against us, God. That we have a blank slate with you. And that you've covered and atoned for all of our mistakes, all of our sin. Father, I pray that we would take this heart and this attitude of thankfulness for repentance into our family gatherings this week, into our workplaces, Lord, and and we would use the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with our co-workers and with our families and our friends and, and just share what joy we have because of you forgiving our sin, Lord. And that, Lord, you would use that to plant seeds of the gospel in our friends and our families and our co-workers' hearts that will spring up with the fruit of repentance in their own lives. And Father, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.